Town Hall Academy, episode 75. What I want to do is be able to, you know, through this this broadcast is be able to help people take a step back and go, okay, let's let's be a little more strategic about growing into multiple locations. Because you're right, Carm, the industry is changing. It's where we're going to be going. Um, it's the David versus Goliath. You got, you know, there's big companies out there, Mavis and Carl Icahn and other groups like that that are just scooping up shops left and right because they see the consolidation movement and how they can capitalize on it. So, you know, how do we do that as as our as being Davids? Welcome, automotive aftermarketers, to a Remarkable Results Radio Town Hall Academy. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hey, welcome to the Town Hall Academy, episode 75, released in the second week of July 2018 as the weather in North America is hot. Temps are in the high 80s and 90s and summertime has hit hard. And so will this academy on branching out. Some shop owners are struggling just to make their first shop successful and profitable than to even think of expanding to another branch store. Yet look around you. Consolidation is at full tilt, and succession plans from boomer shop owners are finding the light of day. There are opportunities everywhere to add to your store count. There's an art and science to expansion, and that's the purpose behind today's Town Hall Academy podcast. Hi, Carm Capriato here, reminding you that Jasper Engines and Transmissions supports your free access to the Town Hall Academy. Keep in mind that a family keeps their vehicle an average of 11 years. So where's the first place to turn when the drivetrain fails? Why, Jasper, of course. A vehicle is a major purchase. It should be trusted to a 100% associate-owned company for quality remanufactured products. Thanks, Jasper. There are many ways to subscribe to the podcast, up to and including my own app, available for Android and Apple. Just search for Remarkable Results Radio on your app store. It's free. You'll like how it works. You can find the link for that or find a favorite podcast listening app for your mobile device at remarkableresults.biz slash app, A-P-P. Hey, get on board with the aftermarket's most powerful audio content library. Have you seen the photo page on the website? Now go there and get yourself a smile. You just may find a shot that you are in or know a ton of people who are photogenic. Got a picture that has relevance to the podcast or with me and you in it? Send it my way. Email it to carm at remarkableresults.biz. Hey, now let's talk branching out into new stores. The panel includes multi-shop owners Greg Bunch from Aspen Auto Clinic, Colorado Springs and Denver, Colorado. And Greg is also the CEO of Transformers Institute. Dwayne Myers, Dynamic Automotive, Frederick, Maryland. And Brian Sump, Avalon Motorsports, Denver, Colorado. They all have additional growth plans. There are a ton of key talking points for you at RemarkableResults.biz slash A075. Yes, the cliff notes already done for you. Catch the glow of wisdom from this panel as they cover finance, leadership, and strategic planning. And the most important strategies for growth, great people, and a very strong why. Also, you'll find out how important location is and is acquisitions the best way to grow. Another power-packed lesson. Now enjoy the Town Hall Academy. Am I ready for a branch store? And I think you guys are all going to agree. A really important topic next week, improving your soft skills, how to lead and spread a positive vibe. Boy, I think we almost need that to be a good branch leader, Greg. Right. 
Yeah, that's it's it's really when you have multiple locations, you're no longer a technician, you're no longer a service writer, uh, you're really not even a store manager anymore. You are um, the psychologist. You're the you're the people person. You're the strategist. You're the the visionary. And it's just it's a completely different role than what most shop owners, even even myself, when I got into this business, I had no idea that I was going to be a multi-shop owner one day and that I would be in the position of a, of a CEO that I'm in now. I just thought, hey, I'm going to be a technician for a long time. I can fix cars better than most guys that I work with. Um, I'm good with people. I can sell service. I'll be just fine. And uh, I didn't start out how... You know, it's not like I don't probably nobody in this room here, you know, started with an MBA and said, I'm going to be in the automotive industry and I'm going to have a big strategic plan and I'm going to have 50 locations. And that's what you started out to do right out of college. You know, most of us kind of tumbled into the successes that we have now. And so what I want to do is be able to, you know, through this, this broadcast is be able to help people take a step back and go, okay, let's, let's be a little more strategic about um, growing into multiple locations because you're right, Carm, the industry is changing. It's where we're going to be going. Um, it's the David versus Goliath. You got, you know, there's big companies out there, Mavis and Carl Icahn and other groups like that, that are just scooping up shops left and right. Um, because they see the consolidation movement and how they can capitalize on it. So, you know, how do we do that as, as our, as being David's? So, Brian, let me ask you this question. I've done it once, so that means I can do it again, right? Yeah, in theory it does. Um, I guess it's just like the first time you hit a baseball or the, the first time you ask a girl out and she says yes. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a confidence-building thing. Um, and then I guess to those same analogies, there's the countless strikeouts, um, swinging the bat. There's also the times that a lot of she said no. Um, but, yes, having it done once should imply that you could do it again. Is that how you grew your second branch? In our case, we, we got to watch a lot of uh, peers do it first, and it, it scared me. I, Greg Bunch and I have been friends for a lot of years. Maybe eight years ago, I watched him and some others go through this process. And, and honestly, I thought to myself, if this is what it's like, I don't want to do it. Because it seemed high-stressed. It, it seemed like you could calculate uh, it wasn't steam like it is high stress. <laughs> okay, let's be real. It was high stress. Um, we, we like to use the word stretch, so it will stretch you. Uh, yes. But yeah, you know, there's a the concept of, uh, I guess, getting to the why you would do something like that. And, and one of the things that I pose is the, the e-myth, you know, Michael Gerber wrote about this philosophy that in business, you'll work less and make more money. That can happen, but by and large, it's not the norm. Right. So when you think about growing stores, why would you do that? And, uh, and if you're going to go to number two or three or six or 10, you're going to experience similar things as number one. It just may look a little different. It might be a different type of magnitude. So yeah, the, the why is a big, a big part of the growth plan. Dwayne, is it about the money? Uh, partially. <laughs> it's, it's, it always comes down to the money, but really it, it's about your brand, uh, about what you want to do. You know, you want to grow your footprint, um, to be able to do more. And really I look at it now after 20 some years, it's about making opportunities for your team. When you become known and you have a culture of growing and promoting from within, you need to look for the next right opportunity so that you can keep your team moving um, and growing. And it, it, it does snowball multiply, but you know, that was like step 50, you know, 
there was a lot in between because when we opened our second location, I didn't have a Greg Bunch or a Brian Slump to look at. We didn't have anybody. We were one of the first to go to a second store and we didn't do so well. It was definitely, definitely a struggle. So it wasn't about the money. We just wanted more. And we wanted the first store we, we rented, we wanted to own the property. And that was our first where we actually owned it. So that was one of the big reasons for starting number so two for us. Three partners, um, now four stores and soon to be hopefully more. The point was is that when you went to your fourth store, you started to have to think about the people equation. Yeah, once once it got past, you know, that's the thing is, which I know will be coming up is, you know, one person can't run everything, you know, right. at least not be there going the day-to-day operations. They can guide and lead the business, but someone else has to be there. And we finally crested that to where um, we weren't able to be everywhere at one time. So well, now we look at more of, of development of our team, which to me, that is the number one thing before you expand. Greg, you uh, talk a lot about the DNA of yourself and being able to duplicate yourself, which is one of the greatest challenges of uh, trying to be that, if you will, hub of that wheel. How does uh, right. what, what the best advice on that? Well, it is probably the most difficult thing to do. I, I, given the analogy, you know, you had a clear glass of water and that was kind of the shop when I first started it. It was me, uh, my wife at the time. I ended up hiring a friend of mine just to, to help out sweep floors and help change oil and that kind of thing. And I was there every day, 12 hours a day, sometimes six days a week. So, so the company was my DNA. And every time, you know, think of a, like food coloring, right? You, you put a drop in the water and that's every new employee. But if you're there and you have your influence on them and, and they're, they see how you operate, they're copying what you do, you're teaching, guiding, instructing, and leading them, that water is going to stay that nice color blue. And then and I, and you see this, you, you've interviewed a lot of people that decide not to go multi-store because they want to preserve that. And they know that they're going to have that challenge, as, as Dwayne was talking about, once you grow past that, okay, how do I keep my water blue in each multiple location? Because what happens, it happened to me, um, Dwayne, it probably happened to you through this, and I, I know you have partners, so that changes a little bit, but almost everybody that I've talked to is going through the growing pains, find out that that, now you're adding, okay, a guy, I, he he ran a really good Midas, but his, his bottle is of uh, drops are red and you, you got another guy that had a great uh, European shop and, and he did well and he's working for you now and he was the purple dye. Well, you start putting those different colors in and if you don't have a strategic way of getting all those people on the same page, all of a sudden you have this brown murky water and and so you have cultures and you have management styles and you have leadership styles from and and selling styles and, and uh, diagnostic styles that come from all these different directions and trying to clear that up and put it together. I wish I could say it's just there's some easy answer, but there's really not. Um, to me, it's 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 people development and, and making sure that you're not you're 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 delegated and elevated yourself enough to be in a role that you can have those key people around you that still understand and, and work within your DNA. And sometimes that means you get somebody that looks great on paper, but they're 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 purple and they're going to stay purple. They're not going to be the blue color that you need them to be, and you need to get them out of your pool as soon as possible. And so spending a lot of time getting those people with the DNA and training them is, is really the key. Greg, I was impressed in our interview that we did a while back now. And, uh, you, you were, you were talking about, you know, I, I may have asked you the question on growing to the next branch. And I ask you, how are you training your people? And you say, you've really got to bite the bullet and have the payroll in one of your locations or in multiple locations. And you've got to go through a 
heavy training right. process. I mean, part of the upstart cost, and I would love to talk about the pro forma here coming up with you, Brian, but you've got to, you've got to have that money ready to invest in training. Right. And we made that mistake. I think I shared that with you on my first podcast was, you know, my sixth door, I had the lease, I had the building remodeled and I had two months free rent, which I negotiated. Yay me. Well, um, the manager that we had slated to, to do that uh, was not ready to manage. Um, he he should have worked for me for a year as a service advisor. And then we really would have been able to see if he was ready to run it. Um, I would have been much better off leaving that building vacant for however long I needed to make sure and bet that I had a good manager. And it, it became a snowball. Well, he didn't work out. So the next guy, we just kind of threw him to the wolves and he didn't work out. And then the next person didn't work out. And then all of a sudden, you know, your customers are seeing four new managers in a two-year time period. And it's really hard to grab that traction back. So, you know, if I could go back and counsel myself, it would have been like, hey, just pay the rent and make sure that you have a fully trained staff that are really ready to rock and roll before you open the doors. Brian. Cultivating the team. I mean, wow. Is that going to be like one of the most critical pieces? Yeah. It, you know, early on, cultivating the team was what sort of pushed us to grow. Um, right. We were raising, we had a great general manager and a great number two in command and then a junior advisor. And these, we were, they were pushing up against the ceiling of growth and, and opportunity. And, and in fact, it was really our team that kind of was the impetus behind our growth because you know, if the number two guy sees a ceiling underneath the number one, he might walk. So you, you almost get forced to create opportunities. Dwayne talked about that a little bit and certain Greg's talked about cultivating talent. If you want to use the word discipleship, um, that's, we kind of use that a little bit, passing and imparting on to others what you know and how to do things and the story. I won't say it here, but there's a story about cutting the ends off the roast beef that I love to tell my staff. Maybe there'll be a time for that later. Or can we do that now? Is it a long one? It's, I can keep it pretty short. It's really simple. Uh, a little girl's with her mom cooking in the kitchen and mom's making a roast. So she cuts the ends off the roast and she puts it in the pan. Little girl says, mom, why did you cut the ends off the roast? Mom kind of looks at her and says, well, that's a great question. Why don't you go ask grandma? So she goes into the, in the living room and she says, grandma, grandma, why do we cut the ends off the roast? And then grandma kind of looked at her a little puzzled and says, yeah, that's a great question. Why don't you go ask great grandma? Mm-hmm. She goes down the hallway, knocks on great grandma's door. Says, Grandma, Grandma, I have to ask you a really important question. Great Grandma says, what is it, sweetie? She says, why do we cut the ends off the roast? And Great Grandma says, she chuckles and she says, so it'll fit in the pan. <laughs> the key to that is, is that there's these things that are passed down through you know, leadership and, and down through levels. And if one guy leaves your organization, there's a hole there. And stories and the why we do things and the how we do things, to Greg's point, are really, really important. And to that DNA if you cut somebody out of a DNA chain and generationally, like physically in the family, there's a, there's a gap there. Or if you, you know, somebody, whatever you adopt somebody, that DNA doesn't get passed on. So. It, no, it's a great story of just doing the same old thing and not even knowing and remembering the reasons why you do it. Yeah. I'm with Ron Haugen of Westside Auto Pros. Hey Ron, why purchase a Jasper engine for your customer's car? Uh, the, the main reason we use Jasper is is they're known for quality, and we're known for quality. They line up with my company and my, and my company's commitment to our customers uh, you know, as a product. They're committed to me. Hey, Ron, are customers investing in their vehicle today? 
Absolutely. You, you know, we, we see the surveys from, from AAA and, and, and all the different people out there where the average age of a car on the road is 11 years old. Some are even saying 12 now. Uh, when you think about that, for every new car sold, that means there's a 22-year-old car being driven on a daily basis. To me, that's amazing. Uh, the only way we get an average age of a vehicle on the road like that is because people are reinvesting in a car. And, and I think the reason they're reinvesting in a car is, is the cost of a car. I mean, cars are thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. You know, why not drop four, five, six, eight thousand dollars into repowering the vehicle and get it back on the road? Hey, Ron, thanks for your insights on Jasper. Thanks for asking. So, guys, I'm a shop owner, got this great team, eight bay place. I've always thought in the back of my mind, maybe I've got to branch out, look for an opportunity, maybe make an acquisition. Go to store two, go to store three, and I've got this great talent inside my place. Is that the right reason to look at someone and try to build a business around a single person? Um, maybe I chime in real quickly on it. The The reason can exist, but you have to envision if that person wasn't there, what would be your, your backup plan? Um, it can force you to get out of your comfort zone and start building, but... You, can't necessarily build it upon that. I mean, there's arguments for, and Greg um, will speak to this about his vision plan, potentially maybe about uh, how do you retain those key, the foreman and the general manager in a store. And whether you have true equity partners like Dwayne or whether you're like Greg and I, and you're the sole owner, you have to create partners. And so you can do it around that person, but you've got to be able to have a plan, a contingency plan if they're not there to bring the next person in. That's, that's the way I see it. Yeah, in our in our mastermind group, uh, it's really specific about either people that are multi-store or going multi-store. And this exact topic is is usually brought up at every meeting. And what Brian is referring to, um, you know, there's an ESOP, right? Employee stock option programs. There's actual partnerships like what Dwayne's in. Um, and Brian and I have been on a journey kind of exploring what they call synthetic stock or phantom stock. Uh, it is a legal agreement, but it doesn't put somebody actually in ownership, you know, where you're actually filing tax returns together, but it gives them, an, in essence, an ownership piece into your business. And then, you know, they would get a payout either they're, when they're looking to buy you out or you sell your company or if there's a triggered event uh, that you have a legal contract um, of, of how that affects them. So in essence, they get the privilege of ownership, feeling and, and financial rewards um, without actually having to file a tax return with you. And a lot of owners I talk to, including myself, are really hesitant to bring on a partner per se, like I said, in a, a tax return. But this is a way to kind of put some golden handcuffs on our key leaders and so that we, we can grow with them. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dwayne. We're looking to expand, uh, I, I think, of people, location, finance, what would you be your number one goal to look for a really good location? Location. It's, either, <laughs> location, it's location, either the location, best location yeah. or, or first in. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've done both um, locations by far. King. You know, you, you, you don't have to market it to death when you have the best location. you got to do your research, not only what's there, but what's coming. You know, our four-store uh, the interchange is still not open. It's it's probably now a couple of weeks. It's a year and a half overdue, but we'll go from the back of the neighborhood to the very front, and everyone will have to go by our door to hundreds and if not thousands of businesses. 
So we'll go from the guy in the back to the guy up front. Uh, and, and that was where we forward looked. You know, you got to look at what's coming, not just what you have in the neighborhood already. Have any of you just selected a branch because it was it was there, the rent was cheap, uh, it was a former shop, I mean, for all these great excuses, yes. and regretted it and, and said, well, I guess when you get bigger, better, and smarter, you get smarter on picking locations. And so what advice could you give to someone who is ready to jump into their second store? That's a great question, Carmen, and, and we get that brought up quite a bit. Um, if you're a European specialist, we found that location may not be quite as important because your people will drive by eight or nine general repair shops to get to your shop if you're a Mercedes or BMW or Volkswagen Audi specialist. Uh, but if you're going to be in the general repair market, uh, like Dwayne said, location is everything. And having it not only uh, visible, but having it in a good demographic, I mean, you could work just as hard in a in a shop that's you know in a on in automotive roll row in the back alley um and never achieve what you could do in that same amount of effort in uh in in a shop that's got great visibility and and drive-by traffic so you know people freak out when they hear that you know people are paying 15 18 dollars rent uh for a location how can people do that how can they people do that because those people and a lot of the franchises, a lot of the, the companies that you see have these bright, shiny buildings. They understand the value of having that prime location. So um, not all my locations are prime locations, and, I, and we pay for it. So as my company grows and we grow and expand and look for acquisitions or, or, or new builds or new buildings, uh, we are absolutely looking at traffic patterns and uh, financial demographics and, and making sure that it's a good match. And it's it's a, it's a, it's a, there's, there's a science to it and there's an art to it. Yeah. Carm, our, our, our number two store, we kind of did what you said, you know, we, it, it was, it used to be a shop, you know, we could buy it. It was ours. So it was natural. We just bought it, but it took years to get it successful because it's not in a, the, the best demographic area, you know, so that's why you got to do your research. But, you know, at that point we were still learning. So now I, you know, I recommend that, you know, you, you do your homework before you buy uh, just owning it's not enough. It's got to be the, the right the right move or you're going to go backwards. Brian, do the homework, the finance side. Give us a quick overview of that. It depends on how you want to add your, your next location. By the way, Carm, the word branch, that, I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense. It, um, but whether you want to grow a branch or add a shop or whatever terminology you want to use, it, it's how you want to do that. So if you want to go from the ground up, maybe that, let's not talk about real estate ground up. Let's talk about starting with one person and, and entering a location and then marketing to build up that store. It's really painful right now. Um, we know a couple handfuls of people that have tried to grow in that model. And, it, and you're probably looking at, it, on average, two hundred dollars to $300,000 investment um, at a minimum to a little bit more. Yeah. more. It might be half a million now. To, to build out the infrastructure, to add staff, to carry payroll for months or years, to market and to build that up, uh, depending on your model. If you're going to blast the marketplace with really cheap oil changes just to get cars, that's a way to do it. Depends on your model. Now, acquisition. That's really the preferred method. Uh, I think this panel right here would agree that that's generally the best method, unless you're in a geographic area where there's a lot of market share and you know you have resources. Right. Um, so let's talk to, about that real briefly. Acquisition. If you have, uh, if you can get a seller of a store to carry you, which means they're financing you for a term and there's no banks or SBA involved, 
that can be a really good situation. Um, seek counsel on how to do that. But traditionally, the good, the good opportunities probably aren't going to be that way. You may get a portion of the seller financing to carry a little small piece of it, maybe 10% or 15%, but you're going to have to go to a bank. So here's a general equation. We're going through looking at some acquisitions right now, getting some SBA pre-qualification. Here's the general rule. On a business acquisition, a bank with the SBA behind them guaranteeing the note is going to want 25% investment by the owner or the buyer and or the seller to make up 25%. And the SBA and the bank will fund 75%. So you need to start doing simple math. Okay. If I can put 10% of a buy or of a purchase of my own money in, I can get the seller to finance 15%. By the way, they're going to have to stand behind the bank in positioning. So if you default, they're going to have to wait until the SBA or the bank gets their money. Right. Um, and then, then the bank will fund 75%. So do simple math. If they want a million dollars for a business, you're going to have to put a minimum of 10% most likely on a 7A loan. And you can expect a $100,000 investment. But the beauty of that is, as same model, a million dollar purchase at a three times earning multiple means that business should be cash flowing around $300,000 or $330,000. And you run simple math, take off your taxes, take off your debt service, you still should be able to earn enough cash to be cash flow from day one uh, versus a ground up, uh, you know, branch addition in which you could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in the hole and two or three years down the road before you ever see a dollar of profit. So that, that's at least that's a general overview. Oh my God. I'm sitting here listening to this and I'm hearing all that <laughs> stuff. 7% SBA, 20%, 15 here, 300 multiples. And I'm saying, oh, I'm going to jump off the closest. Makes you want to go start a radio show instead, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Come on. Yeah. Brian didn't talk about all the overruns in construction. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I think it's those sobering thoughts that we need to have, which is the reason we're, we're doing this. Where do you get help? You know, here I am. I, I got a successful place. I'm making 15%. I got a great team. The culture's right. And there's a ton of shops out there that are in the, that are in the top echelon of our industry that really feel that they want to go to the next level. Where do they get help? Well, if I can uh, put a plug in it, <laughs> uh, that's, right there. <laughs> yeah, that's something that we're uh, we, we we feel at the Transformers Institute. We're on the leading edge of providing training uh, for that exact thing. Um, and whether whether you get my help or somebody else's help, I'm sure I'm not the only one um, out there. But man, do not do it alone. It is a tough journey, and you are going to run into things that you have never seen, thought you would see, experience, um, and so getting professional help and making that investment in yourself and in your team and in your infrastructure is vital to your success. I wish that I had myself uh, 15 years ago when I started on the multi-store journey, I would, um, I'd be talking to you from my beach mansion down in uh, the Caribbean somewhere instead of from my office. I, no, I didn't mean to put a shameless plug in there for you. Greg. <laughs> I appreciate it, but that. it would have been, uh, but you did so great. Good for you. And, and it goes back to the fact that, Many, many shop owners have really made a big pivot in their life, found a business coach. But those business coaches can absolutely help in an acquisition like this and do even help test the waters and do an assessment. Is the business ready right. for, for that next level? Um, Brian, 
you've said uh, you need to be ready to accept small declines, even though you're, you're ready to grow in your business. I, I love your theory. Can you explain that a little deeper as to how you help manage a business that was making 20% and now two that are only making 15? Yeah. Again, I think this panel would agree. I know Greg and I, I think Dwayne, we've talked about this in the, in the Transformers group. What is a reasonable standard of net profit uh, when you have more than one location? Uh, industry benchmarks for a single location are 20% net. If you can exceed that, then great. But we've compiled a lot of data that says to get beyond 15% per store uh, when you have more than one, it's just really tough. Uh, but, you know, you can do simple math and say, if I get 20% of one business in net, but I can get 15% of two, that's, uh, you know, it's a bigger number at the, at the end of the day. So here's a, a little tiny p- uh, piece of advice that really helped me understand a growth mentality. I think most of us shop owners are very particular, whether you're a technician that became a shop owner and the standard of technical care is through the roof. You will not let anything leave uh, you know, below that standard or whether you're a front end guy and the customer interactions, whatever it is, we're OCD. So here's, here's the advice. And I learned this years ago, uh, Greg and I, and I will share this as well. If you're not okay, accepting 85 to 90% of the quality of what you could establish in a single store with you in it every day, if you cannot accept a little bit lower uh, standard of quality when it comes to quality of service, sales, profits, uh, capacity between all your stores, et cetera, growth might not be for you. Um, now, it's not to say that we don't set that 100% expectation. Right. But you have to be okay if that degrades in any way. And that's the general thought process behind that advice. Greg, you want to chime in on that? No, that, that's absolutely true. And we, Brian and I both sat in a class uh, being taught by another uh, multi-store operator that, that brought that topic up. And everybody in the room kind of cringed because at that time, most of us were single store owners. And that, that you're attacking our ego. You're attacking, no, we can do that better. We can do that. And he said, look, you know, everybody's tried, but, but that is a reality or else you're going to put yourself in an early grave. So um, it is difficult. It is, um, it is something that you have to accept. You don't want to, but if you think about it, you know, you go to, you go to Chili's and you know, they're, they're all over the country and some of them uh, you're going to get great service and great food. And, and the bathroom is spot on and clean and everything's nice and painted and the carpet's fresh and you walk another one and things are worn out and the, the servers are worn out and the food's a little off from what, what you expect. Um, you know, that doesn't mean the whole Chili's chain is bad. It just means that, you know, whoever that owner of that company is knows that he's not going to have or she a hundred percent at every single location. You do your best to do that. But if you can't swallow that pill um, again, like Brian said, this is probably not something you should, you should venture into. Um, And both of us, because we are both OCD and and perfectionists uh, as most everybody in our mastermind group is, it's definitely a challenge and it, it boils back to the initial conversation of finding training, hiring, retaining the best possible people we can. Isn't it amazing? Uh, you, you're talking about OCD. Dwayne, how about you? Are you in that? You see, oh, I, I fall right behind. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. It's so amazing how there's a, there's, there is, you know, a kind of a profile or a trait amongst some just incredible leaders. So here I am. I'm thinking, wow, if I had a second store and a third store, I could share costs over all these multiple locations. And Brian, pretty much you said... Don't plan on that. So how 
can I actually see the future of uh, of a, a business that I'm looking to create? And and I'm really trying to push you into the pro forma. And not a lot of people understand what a pro forma is and how it's used. It's a funny word. Uh, the first time I heard that was the SBA, and we need you to write a pro forma. And I'm like, pro is a good word. It's not common, yeah. right? So it's got to mean something. Form, um, though, that's the bad word. Nobody likes filling out forms. Right. Yeah, you can think of it in a way as a budget. Um, budgets function a little bit differently because budgets give benchmarks for your leadership or management to, to try to fall within in the operations of a business. A pro forma is what do I expect reasonably to happen um, after an acquisition of a business? So there, there's uh, when we do them, we have a spreadsheet, you know, an Excel spreadsheet, and we kind of can follow somebody's profit and loss statement, enter it into a spreadsheet, and then we can start to move pieces around. The nice thing about like Dwayne's situation, Greg's situation, where you've got three, four, five stores, is you have a standard of normality, what I would call, you know, reasonable expectations in each store about what are my office supplies, what should my rent be, you know, below the line expenses. And then you can do math about, what kind of profit percentage are they getting on parts, et cetera? So your pro forma is nothing more than a projection, uh, say for the end of the year when you buy a business and then the second and third year that you're going to look at and say, okay, this is what they're doing now. Uh, can I expect that to continue? Is there upside? And if there's upside, where can I expect that upside to be? Whether it's I can increase sales by increased marketing, I can increase my margins by charging more, or I can reduce some of these expenses through economy of scale. That means having uh, sharing expenses over multiple shops uh, or just being smarter and more prudent with the money. Business plan, so in, so important too? Well, I, I don't know about you guys. Um, for me, business plan is, is kind of a guideline. Um, and anybody that's been an entrepreneur knows that business plans can go every direction from true north to 359 uh, you know, degrees the other direction. But will the SBA look for one? You know, I, I think in my experience, we've done one acquisition through SBA. I, I think they wanted a little bit of a strategy plan. But when I use the pro formas to just make line items about the expectations of what we were going to change, um, and then a basic overview of why this was a good acquisition and, and stuff like that, um, they didn't need a formal business plan. Like when you start a business and get a bank loan and they need like a 50-page or 20-page document. That they um, never read, by the way. depends <laughs> on your situation. I don't know, you guys, Dwayne, did you agree with that? I, th I think if you're looking for a new financial institute, you need some sort of a business plan form. But but once you have that relationship, they don't look at that. They want to see your projections or your performance. Right. You know, ours are projections. They want to know what's what's it going to do. And then they're going to look at your history. And, and when you have four or five shops, you can show them this is what we do. These, you know, the margins are the margins. If this is what you do at one location or at five, it's more likely what you're going to do at number six. So... They, they, they look at that. And, and so that relationship, that's why that's another important relationship to have before you try to expand is a financial one. Hey, I'm so glad we, we jumped into financials. In fact, we probably need two hours to really get deep in it. But uh, Greg, you know, Transformers Mastermind, Transformers Institute, I think is exactly uh, the right name. Um, you guys uh, started because you were multi-shop owners and you built a great organization. So it's right. not it's not a plug for you at all. But the fact of the matter is, is it's a resource in our industry and people should consider it. So, Dwayne, let me let me jump. We have a hard stop here at uh, at 45 after the hour. And, and I want to really talk about team buy-in and the leadership piece that 
I, I know you really excel at. Give us, uh, give us a feel for how you have developed the leaders inside the company that have so bought in to where Dynamic is going. I guess the, the best way to get buy-in is to have an open mind to listen. Um, now, you know, as, as you know, after we opened our fourth location, uh, myself, uh, Lee and Jose, we, we stepped aside and our, our location ma- uh, managers actually run the stores. They know our feelings, our morals, what we believe is the right thing to do. And, and they, uh, they have input and a lot of say. And I feel if you want anybody to have buy-in, they have to have say some way. And if, it, if their say isn't monetary or where they own a part of the business, they at least have to be able to feel like it is their business. And I feel that our location, and I really call them team leaders. I, I'm almost done with the word manager anymore. Our team leaders, uh, they, they have ownership in, in their heart. They, they know that if they decide this is what we want to do, um, and they have good reasons for it. We're behind them because, you know, the collective group is definitely smarter than just the three owners are, you know, when you bring them all together. And, and I feel if they feel they have a say and they feel they have ownership in it, that the buy-in is there, but you got to listen and really listen and actually try. I mean, worst you happen, it fails. So you try again, you know, it's not going to sink. the. You don't let it sink the ship. You, you keep trying and you, you let them have opportunities. And I believe that because of that, they're with you. They're going to go with you because it's your all's company now. So what happens, Greg, that we're getting ready to expand um, the teams behind us and we're going to have some overage. We're going to be paying for uh, staff training. Uh, I run one of the shops. Does my P&L suffer from that extra payroll or do you work it? It, it is. You have to look at it just like buying a new lift or a marketing campaign Anytime you're going to grow your business, you have to make an investment into it. And so you're investing in the team ahead of time. And again, you know, my story on store number six, I did not spend enough time, energy, and money to uh, have a solid enough team before I opened that store. And it was, uh, it, it did not work out as well. So uh, moving forward, having those people work within your organization, getting that DNA so that's the same as what you and your, the, the, the strong business you already have. It's just going to be part of it. And hopefully you're making enough margin that you can absorb that. But, you know, I think a business kind of like a stair step where, you know, you get to a certain level and, and you're making a certain amount of money. And, and I talked about this in a couple of my seminars where a lot of, a lot of shop owners get to that point, you know, maybe as a technician, they made $80,000 a year and now they own a shop and they make 150 or 200,000 and they go out and they buy every toy. They got a bigger house. And now they're, you know, the American way, right? You spend everything that you make and they don't leave themselves any margin and they have to make that certain amount of money to provide for their lifestyle instead of going, you know what, I'm going to take a a longer term approach to this. I'll continue to live off 80 or a hundred thousand. I'm going to bank that other money put it away to grow my business so that one day I'm making a million dollars a year. Very few people kind of think that way. And so when I teach, I always say, you know, live on a personal budget, you know, just because you make, just because your P and L says you make 200,000 doesn't mean you got to take $200,000 out of your account, leave, put yourself on a reasonable amount of payroll, maybe some bonuses if you do really well, but you want to leave a lot of capital in your business. If your plan is to go multi-store and to grow, um, other people are said, Hey, you know what? I'm making good money. I don't have any desire to go past that. And, and that's fine. It's a personal choice, but man, do not go into thinking that you're going to go multi-store without being willing to make that financial investment in your people. 
And the opportunities, guys, today are great for that. Yes? Yes. There's a study done in 2015 that 58% of mom and pop shops want to be out of the business. Now, that doesn't mean they, they want to close their doors. Some of them are just saying, you know what, I'm going to close my doors, sell to a key employee, put it on the market, liquidate, whatever that looks like. But that is a huge amount of turnover. And that the prediction was for 2020, which is right around the corner. So um, now not all those shops are going to be great acquisitions. Acquisitions, Some of them will be, hey, you know what, send me your master tech and your database and your phone number, um, because that's all that's really that has value in it. But I'm telling you, we are on the verge of a major change within the automotive industry which is why you see Mavis and Carl Icahn and the likes out there scooping up shops. I mean, those guys are smart business people. We uh, should probably come back and just do an entire episode on strategies of acquisitions and and how they work. And of course, you know, this, this whole branch piece um, is important. Hey, uh, it is that time, one minute before the hard stop at the 45 wow, after the hour. that went fast. <laughs> it did go fast. And, you know, and, and Brian's got an important engagement he's got to get to. And so we're going we're gonna to let him go. And, and usually I go around the room, but we don't have time for a two or three minute summary from each of you. But uh, I promise uh, if this thing, you know, is, is going to be as well listened to as I believe it is, maybe we need to come back and do round two, or maybe we need to have you guys back and really talk about, you know, acquisition strategy on how it works with branch. You know, I love this, the talk about the SBA and all the different strategies and how to buy multiples. But uh, maybe would you come back if we, we need to do this? Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much. And, yeah, uh, I need, need to come back, Carm, because we got to talk about SOP and standard operating procedure. Yeah, we never got there. And you, you got to grow the right way, or you're gonna fail. That's right. Yeah, if you don't have those systems in place, you'd be crazy to put the key in, in a new door. Great. Hey guys, thanks so much, Town Hall Academy. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time. 